The scripture text for this morning's message is found in Isaiah 53. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles or in one of the Pew Bibles as I read Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When he makes himself an offering for sin... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus said that the greatest commandment in all the world, is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. And I take that to mean at least that every Christian should be zealous for the glory of God. If you love God with all your heart, then nothing will make you more glad than when the cause of God prospers, when His glory is exalted and His name is lifted up around the world in more and more peoples. And if you love God with all your heart, nothing will make you more grieved or troubled than when His glory is cheapened and His name is despised. So, 
In other words, when Jesus commands us to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, He is demanding that we have a radically God-centered heart and a radically God-centered soul and a radically God-centered mind and a radically God-centered use of our strength. And people who are radically God-centered in their heart and soul and mind and strength grieve when the glory of God is eclipsed and they rejoice with joy unspeakable when the glory of God shines forth in its full and undiminished strength. If that's true, then there's something very troubling that has arisen in this series of messages on the pleasures of God. We've seen several things. We've seen that God has pleasure in His Son, which means that God delights with all His might in His own perfections as He sees them reflected back to Him in the countenance of His Son, who is the image of His glory. And we have seen that God delights and has pleasure in His own name. Which means He loves to make a name for Himself around the world. He loves it when His reputation stands forth in power for His glorious grace. He loves it when among more and more peoples and tongues and tribes and nations around the world, there's a reputation for His grace and His glory in His people. And we saw thirdly then, that as a means to that end, God loves election. He loves to reveal the glory of His Son to babes and to hide it from the wise. He loves to call out from among people the most unlikely sorts who will then be a people for Him who will make their only boast in the Lord. And then we saw the unspeakable truth last week that God gives way to a kind of exuberance and abandon as He sings over His people with loud shouts of rejoicing. This is an almost unbelievable thought that God shouts and sings with joy over His people. Now, what's troubling about that for the God-centered soul? What's troubling is that the people God has chosen to save and sing over are all sinners. And you know what sin is? Sin is belittling the glory of God. Romans 3.23, a verse we all learn when we're learning how to share the gospel. For all have sinned, and what? Fallen short of the what? Glory of God. What does that mean? That means, I think, that the essence of sin is the falling short in our duty to prize the glory of God more than houses, spouses, computers, VCRs, new cars, better resumes, money, prestige, alcohol, drugs, sex, sunshine, health, church, 
everything. Sin is failing to prize the glory of God above all things. Those are the people that God has chosen to save. And even after He saves us, we just keep on dishonoring Him too in our sin. So the troubling thing is that God gets so enthusiastic about doing us good. It's a strange thing that God with omnipotent energy sings and rejoices over doing good to sinners whose sin belittles the glory that He loves with all His might. This is troubling. It's schizophrenic on the face of it. The Bible makes God out to be a God who loves His name, who loves His glory, who loves His reputation, who pours all of His energies into exalting His glory. And the Bible makes God out to be a God who with omnipotent energy rejoices over doing good to sinners who trample His glory in the dirt. This is troubling. This is strange. It's like a piece of music. The Old Testament up to Jesus Christ is like a piece of music that's so full of dissonance that you can't figure out what the, what the resolution is going to be. It just begs for some harmonious resolution. You've got God exalting His glory and you've got God loving sinners who hate His glory and they don't fit. They interweave and they intertwine all through the Old Testament and you cry out for some resolution. How in the world will these two passions in the heart of God ever be brought into harmony and into resolution so that He's not a schizophrenic, so that He's a holy and just God and a God of grace towards unworthy sinners who hate His glory. It's like a symphony. And there are two grand themes in this symphony that that for a long time in the playing of this symphony seem antagonistic. They don't blend the theme of His love for His glory and the theme of His love for sinners. And you listen to this symphony in the Old Testament and it is so magnificent and yet so clashing that you know a grand composer is at work and you... By faith, believe it is going to be resolved. There will be a resolution someday. Somehow, some way, it's going to work out. Again and again, right through the Old Testament, these two themes carry the symphony along. They interweave, they interpenetrate, and we wait. And like most good uh, symphonies, I suppose, a composer gives hints, foretastes, allusions to what the symphony will sound like in its resolution, in harmony. And that's what God did in the Old Testament. It's called prophecy. There are foreshadowings. There are types of what is to come. 
And I want to look at one of those with you. We'll, we'll, we'll wait till Good Friday and Easter to look at the resolution, namely Jesus Christ crucified. But there is a magnificent sound in Isaiah 53. And for those who have ears to hear, this is an incredible foretaste. In fact, I hope that many of you have Jewish friends and colleagues and that you will listen to this message with two kinds of ears. A Jewish ear and a Gentile ear with the hope that maybe you will see something here that will give you a way to talk to them. It is an amazing prophecy. I mean, this ought to strengthen your faith in an unusual way this morning because of the way this prophecy, 700 years before the fulfillment in Christ, spelled out what our Lord accomplished. We're going to focus on verse 10, but before I read it, I want to justify a couple of words that I'm going to translate differently from the RSV and the NIV. To do that, I want to show you two verses outside this text in Isaiah. The first one is chapter 1, verse 11. In chapter 1, verse 11, the Lord is speaking. He's indignant with His people because of their empty worship. And He says, verse 11 of chapter 1, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or he goats. Now notice the word delight. I do not delight in them. That is the verb used in the first line of Isaiah 53.10, where it says in the RSV, it was the will of the Lord. It ought to be translated, I think, was the delight of the Lord. It was the pleasure of the Lord. Or traditionally, would be fine, the Lord was pleased, or it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The word carries this emotional freight. It's used again in the last line as a noun. To see this, look at Isaiah 62.4, where this noun form of this word occurs. In Isaiah 62, verse 4, in one of these glorious words of hope that God gives to his people, he says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, and here it is, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights, there's the verb again, in you and your land shall be married. So the, the noun is found in this phrase, my delight is in her. That will not work if you say my will is in her. But that's the word, the very word used in the last line of verse 10 in Hebrews 53.10. The delight of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
And it's, it's clearly picking up on the word in line one. So let me translate the, the verse now and read it. The Lord was pleased or the Lord took pleasure to bruise his son, to bruise him. He has put him to grief or caused his pain. When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And then picking up on the word from, from line one, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, this is a magnificent prophecy of our Lord. Notice three things that are prophesied. The bruising of the son, the servant, is clearly the crucifixion of Jesus. The prolonging of his days. What is that? but his resurrection to endless life after he is killed. And the offspring that he will see, who are they but those who are begotten of God through the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ. It's a magnificent portrayal of what's coming in Jesus Christ. But what I want you to focus on with me is this. God is at work in this verse. It was the will of the Lord... And the pleasure of God the Father to bruise his servant, the Son. Jesus was not swept away onto Calvary by the accident of wicked men. God bruised his own Son. Why? He did it to resolve the tension between his love for his own glory and his love for sinners. Look at verse 6. We'll get a hint of this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, God the Father, has laid on him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. Now, notice two things. First, the Lord is still at work. It is the Lord who lays on the servant sin. And second, notice that it has to do with sin and iniquity. The bruising of the son was owing to the fact that God dishonoring sin cannot be swept under the rug. You see, if you came to the gospel fresh for the first time, and you hadn't heard it a hundred times, and you heard that a father was going to kill his son in order that he could forgive me, you would probably raise the objection, wait a minute, why don't you just let bygones be bygones? Why don't you just forgive us? Why in the world do you kill your son? Can't you just let bygones be bygones? So you see what this text poses, what problem it poses us with. Why can't God just let bygones be bygones? Because he loves his glory. And sin is the trampling of his glory in the dirt. 
He cannot sweep sin under the rug as though it didn't matter. It matters infinitely. God is holy and just and righteous and loves His glory infinitely. You see the substitution in verse 5? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It wasn't because of His own. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So why was the son bruised? Because the father wanted, delighted in, danced over the thought that we might be saved, healed, forgiven. And yet he was righteous. What does righteousness mean? When you say God is righteous, and Jesus was a demonstration of his righteousness in Romans 3.25, what do you think of? This is what I think of. God is righteous in that he always, with infinite, omnipotent energy, loves what is most worthy. If he were to cease loving what is most worthy of love, he would be an idolater and unrighteous. And what is most worthy is the glory of God. And therefore, God's righteousness is his unswerving allegiance to always preserve, display, and uphold the glory of his name. If he were to ever retreat, from the upholding of the glory of His name, the universe would vanish out of existence. There would be nothing but injustice in all the world. But we are sinners. And what is sin? Sin is preferring to glorify something more than God by setting our affections upon it. So here we have it. We have a righteous God whose passion is to glorify His name. And we have a God whose passion is to save sinners who trample His name in the dirt every day of their lives. This is troubling. And the resolution is found in the bruising of the Son. And not just the bruising of the Son, but verse 10 says, the Father's pleasure was to bruise the Son. Is that possible? Can you fathom such a thing that God would delight in the crucifixion of Christ? Let me suggest two senses in which I think he does. The first one comes from looking at the last part of verse 10, where we see this word pleasure picked up again. It says, the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I take that to mean that God's pleasure is not so much in the suffering as in what the suffering accomplishes when it prospers, when it bears fruit. What is the fruit of the suffering here in these verses? Well, if you just let your eye run down over verses 10 and 11, you see at least four things. In verse 10, there's going to be a spiritual offspring. 
In verse 10, there's going to be the lengthening of the days of the sun right into eternity. In verse 11, the sun is going to be satisfied as he beholds the fruit of his travail. And in verse 11, many people are going to be justified. This is a magnificent prophecy. The whole doctrine of justification is right here as the sun counts others righteous. And God sees all of this fruit this prosperity coming out of the bruising of the sun. And he, he loves it. He delights in it because he delights in these things. But there's a second and I think deeper sense in which God delights in the bruising of the sun. And it comes from this thought. The depth of the sun's suffering is the measure of of his love for the glory of the Father. Let me say that again because that's a crucial point. The depth of the Son's suffering is the measure of his esteem or love for the glory of the Father. Every footfall on the way to Calvary echoed through the whole universe with this message. The glory of God is of infinite worth. The glory of God is of infinite worth. And every hammer blow that he willingly endured was a hammer blow that echoed through the whole universe. The glory of God is of infinite worth. And since God values his glory above all things, when he looked upon those hammer blows... And those footfalls, he was pleased. He delighted in the message that the suffering of the Son sent through this universe. And when he forsook the Son and handed him over to the curse on the cross and didn't lift one finger to help him bear the load of our sin. He had not ceased to love his son. For with every blow on his hand, with the thrust in his side, with every heave on the cross, he heard the message loud and clear, worthy, worthy is the glory of my father. So the depth of the son's suffering was the measure of his love for the father's glory. The Father loves His glory above all things and therefore was pleased with the bruising of the Son. Listen to this word from Jesus. John 10. I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life and I will take it again. Why was the Father in love with the Son at Calvary? Because He was laying down His life. For the sheep. And then listen to these words from John 17. Father, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou gavest me to do. In other words, when Jesus died, he glorified his father and he saved his father's people who were sinners. And therefore, the resolution of history The great resolution of the symphony of history is found in the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The great theme of God's love for His glory 
and the great theme of God's love for sinners who scorn His glory are brought together in a grand resolution as the Father delights to bruise His Son. Let me close with a story. Once there was a land full of people who were enslaved by a foreign and wicked prince. He enslaved all the people in the land on the far side of the canyon and built a massive bridge, a trestle, for the trains to bring the slaves across the canyon and serve in his coal mines every day. And he made them miserable. And there were two people who were left free in this land, an old man and a young man, and they lived high on an inaccessible cliff in a small cottage overlooking the canyon. And they saw the trestle and they hated the trestle. And they saw the people and they loved the people. And they planned to blow up this bridge. They were going to blow this bridge to smithereens one night. And they made the plan. And they prayed. And they strengthened each other's hearts that heaven is real. And the day came, the night came for the deed. And it was a difficult deed. Because they had noticed that the trekking of the guards and the flashing of the lights were such that one could get onto the bridge, plant the explosive in the vulnerable spot, but could never get off the bridge before he was seen. Nevertheless, they resolved that the younger would blow the bridge up. He would detonate it himself to make sure the bridge, the bridge went. The night came. And they were at a little table in the cottage preparing themselves for the deed. They made their last discussions and they prayed together. They strengthened each other's hands in hope. And then they stood from the table, folded their maps and embraced each other. And the younger went to the door, the explosive strapped to his back. And he turned and he looked at the old man and he said, I love you, Father. And the old man took a deep breath with joy in his heart and said, I love you too, son. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we want to praise you as sinners saved by the miracle of your son's resolution. To praise you that you have never forsaken a holy and righteous love for your glory. To praise you that you have never forsaken your inscrutable love for sinners like us. And to praise you that you were pleased. To bruise your son for our sake and for the sake of your great and holy name. Amen.